Good evening, Team Kulak community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Kulak Center, and as always with us is Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russia subject matter expert here at Team Kulak. Uh, as you've all mentioned, slightly different environment and background for me. I am on the road carrying the torch of wargaming along with our wargaming director, Colonel Tim Barrick, out to the to the wider world here, um, which as uh, you've all charitably said, my room looks like I'm resuming bachelor living. Um, I hope it's not that bad because it's only been a day. But anyway, um, we are, it's been a couple of weeks since we had our last episode and we are, among other things, you know, Yuval and I, we've been sort of looking at the one-year mark of the war is coming. And in fact, it's it's only four days away. So, you know, we were going to have some things to discuss here around this time frame anyway. However, again, uh, I, I think on many sides here approaching that one-year mark, things have gotten busier. And in fact, as of today, there were, there were some very unexpected developments that we saw that we're going to talk about here today. Um, but first thing we're going to start off with is, looking at what is what is going on with the you know the the winter offensive or offenses that have been you know we've talked about it here it's been something that you know people who have been looking at the development of the war over the last few months have been saying like both sides are going to do it who's you know kind of trying to figure out who's going to do it first and it seems like in some sort of retrospective aspect i guess uh the the russian offensive has actually been going on and i, I don't want to oversimplify and say you know, they're going on and nobody's noticed, but I don't think it's taken sort of the character that maybe we, you know, we're comparing it to their initial offensive, you know, a year ago here in four days as this massive buildup of forces and then multi-axis advances and, you know, obviously lots of problems and, and lack of coordination in pretty much every element on that offensive. But, you know, it built up and then a lot of, a lot of, Firepower, manpower went forward into this offensive, and I think as um, one of one of your colleagues, Michael Kaufman, mentioned on a one of his recent podcasts, is the offensive has actually been ongoing, but it's been pretty underwhelming. So let's let's get into that, Yuval, and see you know what's your what's your sense of if we're already seeing it, and uh, if this is in fact the characteristic the characteristics we're seeing are, are a mark of their 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 winter offensive. Uh, definitely doesn't look like what what round one did a year ago. So why does it look different? You know, are we seeing it? Or are we still maybe in the preliminary stages? And uh, if it's actually ongoing, it's uh, it is uh, pretty underwhelming. No, it's certainly always a pleasure to be with you. I think one of the reasons that we we hadn't um, you know done an episode in about a week or so, uh, we've been a bit overdue, is that uh, part of it is besides for the fact that our, I still need to do a bit of research for our next episode on the state of the Russian economy one year into the conflict. But ultimately, part of it is we had told ourselves, you know, once the Russian offensive really gets going, you know, we'll give it a couple of days to assess how has it been in the first couple of days, first week, et cetera, in order to help us understand uh, what the Russians might be able to do over the course of, you know, the winter fighting season, getting into the spring fighting season, in which shape and what sort of shape will they be for basically the summer fighting, which is going to be probably fairly intense given all the stuff that the Ukrainians are getting. And I think over the past week or 10 days, uh, the offensive has started and has underwhelmed in the sense of when you say the word offensive, you anticipate there's gonna be, you know, 
maybe something like last year uh, around this time in which it really reshaped uh, the world that we live in. Or it's something that maybe is a bit smaller, but very well planned and has an element of surprise, like Ukraine's counteroffensive um, in Kharkiv region uh, that really helped take back a lot of the northeast of the country for them. So what we have seen over the past roughly 10 days or so is basically a smaller version of what the Russians were able to do roughly last year. So as, as you described, last year they had something to the effect of, depending on how you count it, roughly maybe between six to nine different axes of attack. Uh, these axes of attack were not really well coordinated with each other, and certainly the command and control within all the individual axes was also not very good. So the Russians, to a large extent, had not only bad strategy, bad intelligence, did not shape the battlefield, didn't follow their own um, their own doctrine in terms of using air and naval assets to really reduce the capability of the of the adversary to basically reduce the the capability of the adversary to resist uh, invasion before sending in the ground troops. The Russians, as we've described before, just basically went Leroy Jenkins on the entirety of Ukraine. That resulted in a lot of their advances getting stopped, a lot of their advances getting getting chopped up and really sort of uh, dropping back um, into um, the areas surrounding Kyiv, the areas surrounding Kharkiv, etc., until they were variously beaten back. Also revealing that while they were in control of, let's say, bedroom communities of Kyiv, like, um, like uh, Bucha, that they committed just unspeakable atrocities. And so over the course of a year, we got used to this idea that the Russians could take, but they couldn't hold. They'd be pushed back. So what we've seen over the past you know, week to 10 days is the Russians really trying the same thing as before, but with even uh, less, but with uh, underwhelming results. They seem to be attacking across the entirety of the line of control. And where they've gotten is, uh, again, some amount of success around the town of Bakhmut, um, which has come from, you know, given the, the eyewitness reports, as well as reporting that we've had from uh, the Pentagon and other sources, is that these are advances that are based on human waves of attack. Uh, relatively low technology, uh, relatively low air naval support, but effectively just huge use of uh, uh, artillery, so basically just fires across the line, and then just sending humans uh, to do their very best. And obviously, that has resulted in tremendous numbers of um, Russian casualties. Now, part of this is to understand what are perhaps the personalities involved, who are the people involved on the Russian side, that can help explain why essentially the Russians are doing the same thing as before, but expecting different results. Um, which is obviously the well-worn uh, definition of insanity. Now, at the beginning of the conflict, the two people roughly in charge of uh, how the war was being run was uh, basically the chief of staff, Valery Gerasimov, and the minister of defense, Sergei Shoigu. These are people who then and now are likely listening to uh, what Putin wants in terms of huge amounts of success, and that they're that Putin probably wants, you know, give me big victories, give me our armies, you know, taking towns, marching across, uh, you know, rapid advances, all that sort of stuff. 
which in practice, because the Russians have not been able to demonstrate sophisticated command and control, getting the logistics right so that people have stuff in place, the training and the capabilities to do joint attacks in any sort of coherent way, it's resulting in the same thing as before. The general who was previously in charge after, uh, you know, Gerasimov Shoigu, and now uh, before Gerasimov Shoigu, uh, the Surovikin, this was the guy who clearly came in with an idea to basically consolidate Russian forces, have defensive lines, and effectively try to attrit to the best degree possible the uh, Ukrainian forces simply by not losing and by using Russian manpower not to just basically waste these lives in terms of trying to take this town or that village, but to try to keep the Ukrainians from winning long enough to try to break, to try to create Ukraine fatigue on the other side, and then, um, you know, weaken Ukraine by weakening its external support. We've also seen in terms of a, um, you know, one of the like, let's say anti-heroes or anti-heroes, depending on which side of the conflict you're on, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. He's the person who obviously um, is the hot dog king of St. Petersburg um, in his uh, one of his previous careers, but has also become much more infamous uh, in recent years through his ownership and his running of the Wagner Private Military Company. Now, this is the guy who earlier in the conflict uh, went across uh, Russian prisons in order to recruit people with, as you put it before, the suicide squad uh, offer. If you come and you fight and you survive, you get your pardon. So ostensibly that was very, that was a very attractive uh, to a lot of people in Russian prisons. Um, and what has that has resulted in, in the course of the past, past few, over the course of the past few months is that Wagner has racked up an estimated 30,000 casualties in the past few months. Uh, Prigozhin has lost his access uh, to Russian prisons. Now that Gerasimov and Shoigu are back in charge of the overall war effort. And um, more importantly, uh, Prigozhin or someone close to Prigozhin uh, leaked audio today in which someone who sounds like Prigozhin is complaining that he wants uh, you know, ammunition from the Ministry of Defense because as he puts it like in this leaked audio, uh, there's plenty of ammunition in the country. The military industrial complex has done its jobs. The factories are working plenty. He knows the exact crate numbers, the exact serial numbers of stuff that he needs to get to the soldiers uh, you know, on the front lines in the trenches. But he specifically names that there are people who are blocking him from getting that uh, getting that uh, ammunition. And he says, these are the sort of people that while, you know, Russian men are dying on the uh, on the front lines, they're sending their children to Dubai uh, to wait out the war, which is a very clear reference to Sergei Shoigu, whose families simply cannot stop posting on Instagram on how much uh, life is just kicking ass while they're just hanging out in Dubai for an indefinite period of time. And so part of this is obviously Prigozhin is demonstrating that he may have had a direct access to Putin in the past, he no longer has it. He's trying to drum up publicity in order to get um, enough of a controversy going up there, utilizing military bloggers in order to force Putin to intervene and tell the military to give Prigozhin what he wants. Um, 
you know, this is very dangerous in terms of uh, Russian bureaucratic politics because a person like Shoigu uh, has been in government since the Yeltsin years. Uh, I don't know if, if Shoigu is very good at organizing and running a war, but I can say that he is very good at Moscow um, court intrigue. Shoigu uh, or, and Gerasimov, as we noted in a previous episode, is the longest serving um, uh, Russian military chief of staff uh, since the Tsarist days. So he also knows his way around uh, some sharp elbows and some um, the, the corridors of power. And what this does in terms of uh, threatening Prigozhin's position is that if he's starting to cause problems for Putin, that Putin has to then intervene more and more, he will look like a very annoying person. And that essentially Wagner's ability to continue its fight will be reduced more and more. So even if uh, Bakhmut is taken from Ukrainian forces, it'll be the Ministry of Defense doing it so that they will basically take the credit for all the bleeding that um, Wagner has done. And so in terms of what, you know, where we can think about this offensive, they've basically done the same thing as before, expected something different, but got the exact same result. The, uh, there's been so far no grand second mobilization. They've reverted back to the offensive versus defensive tactics. And this has led Prigozhin uh, to start complaining, and complainers in Russian politics never last a very long time. There's a very um, well-worn phrase from a medieval, the medieval period of Russia that says, you know, the stability of the cadres depends on no one taking the rubbish out of the hut. You don't air the, the dirty laundry to, peop to foreigners and to rivals. And that is what Prigozhin is doing which demonstrates his relative uh, desperation at this moment, and uh, perhaps uh, something that will uh, not work out for him, not work out well for him in the near future. Yes, that, you know, whenever a leak of something comes out, you know, one of the first questions is always, you know, you know, who benefits, right? And it would seem that this is a, you know, potentially a very tactical leak on the parts of people who would like Prigozhin and, and the Wagner group to to go away um, and uh, and draw down, you know, the wrath of the wrath of Putin to go do something about it. So, um, yeah, well, uh, something to watch here and see if Putin has to go find himself a new hot dog vendor here in the coming months. Um, but to, yeah, uh, a couple final points about the, uh, the offensive I wanted to, to throw out here and then uh, move on to the next one. But is as you mentioned like the, the you know kind of the question of why are we seeing again similar approaches and tactics we've seen before and this goes back to is the russian military a learning organization or not and this is something that i've heard recently on some other other podcasts and read about is it's hard to tell if they're simply not a learning organization or if the the damages that have been inflicted on the russian military have are, have offset any potential learning that's going on. And, you know, there's a few reasons for that, right? And the, we've hit some of this before, you know, on the initial invasion, uh, a lot of the best Russian military units, like, you know, the, the VDV, right, the Airborne, um, they just got, they got thrown in willy-nilly unsupported. And, uh, and you lost those best units, like your best trained, um, your most knowledgeable, so your elite soldiers got ground up and used. So, the people who sort of knew what they were doing, a lot of them are dead. 
And that's that has an impact on, you know, rebuilding any of those units, your overall level of quality, not going to be the same because you've lost a lot of your, you know, your more senior experienced leadership, officer leadership, enlisted leadership. And then that also bleeds over to all of these replacements that have been coming in from the mobilization. You know, not only is that knowledge on the front lines, you know, it's 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 been a tried it very heavily because you've lost a lot of your you lost a lot of your best soldiers on the on the get go. And then you don't have those that knowledge to train those people coming forward through mobilization to get them to a, a basic level of proficiency to survive on that battlefield. Um, and then a third point is the, you know, the, they lost a lot of their best equipment on on that initial invasion, too, because of, you know, just the way they organized and planned it. So that's that's going to impact your more technical and some of your more complicated and nasty problems you would have to face in doing an offensive because you just don't have the stuff to do it with. And somebody pointed out that there, you know, there was a, a recent um, assault on Volodar. I hope I'm pronouncing that sort of properly, but it's one of these towns that's near Bakhmut. I think it's to the South of Bakhmut actually, but there was a couple, you know, within this, this underwhelming offensive window, there was a, an armored thrust that was, a lot of it was captured on video. Um, and you saw again, Russian armored vehicles just, going through minefields, right? And a lot of people are asking, well, why would you do that? You know, um, what, after all of these losses you've taken, why are you sending more armored forces to go take them? And somebody pointed out that um, a lot of the the Russian, like the counter mine equipment that you would normally put to clear like a known minefield, like there are ways of clearing minefields, but a lot of that gear they lost in the initial invasion. And so, you know, a year after the fact, your forces don't have a lot of choice to go to do something besides hey diddle diddle straight up the middle as we would phrase it and you know just use your vehicles as mind clearing things because you don't have that better equipment you lost it in the initial round of the invasion and you didn't reconstitute it you know so you the tactical knowledge only gets you so far if you don't have the right tools to do the job and if you don't have proper mind clearing tools then yeah going through a minefield is going to look a lot worse than if you had effective mind clearing tools um, and I think that reflects like when you sort of zooming in on that and then zooming out on, you know, the, the leadership changes. If in the first, you know, weeks or months of the war, Russia's losing, it's best like, like most professional soldiers, like people who do this, like as a profession, um, you're also losing your best equipment. You're also losing, therefore, the ability to do more complicated maneuvers, like the, essentially to run joint operations. You're also then losing, as you put it, the ability to train incoming waves of people who get mobilized, uh, you know, as, as was the case. So in effect, you're getting a, so if the initial decisions were, the initial tactical decisions were wrong for, you know, things that we would de describe at length before, what the Surovikin, what basically like the, the replacement was able to do is he recognized that in effect, Russia was not going to win the war that it started in February of 2022, and that he effectively had a defensive-minded war, and that he would effectively dig in the forces for a much longer period of time. And that longer period of time effectively robbed Putin of one clear thing, which is whether, no matter how delusional it is, the, the hope or the idea or the certainty that Russia was going to win on the battlefield and quickly. And so in effect, 
by going back to Shoigu and Gerasimov. Putin is going back to people who tell him victory is right around the corner. And when victory is right around the corner for an indefinite period of time, that's how we start to get essentially the replay of the tactics of before, but with lower quality personnel, lower quality or absent uh, equipment, and then obviously lower quality um, tactical and operational decisions, because all of those things are meant to provide Vladimir Putin with victory, not Russia with an ability to hold onto the territory uh, that it has. And that, you know, when we then sort of like project forward into, we'll talk in just a minute about, you know, Putin's address to the Federal Assembly. What does Russia's 2023 look like? If basically their idea is we have to win as soon as possible, but we don't have the people or the tools to do so in anything other than the most uh, inefficient and just bloody manner. Last point I'll make, and then I'll we'll go to the next one. But the, the timing of this is we, you know, everyone was sort of watching, you know, who's going to go first, Russia or Ukraine, in terms of their expected offensive during the, the winter and I guess arguably early spring months now, because it's been been a lot warmer in terms of the wintertime than, uh, than is normal. Um, you know, but who, who is going to go first? And, you know, there were definitely a lot of signals coming from Ukraine of, you know, we need, we need, we need weapons and we need stuff we need it very quickly because, you know, concern that we're not going to have it in time for Russia to do their offensive uh, before Russia does their offensive. But if uh, I, there was another a commentator, I think last week I was uh, listening to, and it, it, you know, if this is the Russian offensive, underwhelming as it is, um, they have, Russia has gone first um, and they may have actually done, uh, they haven't done them a favor, but they have, given Ukraine the chance to absorb that blow and, and grind down that Russian offensive force um, and make it less effective in their ability to withhold, to withstand the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is now gonna be built up with all the armored fighting vehicles that we've talked about and, you know, latest rounds of other military economic aid, you know, not necessarily tanks, because we talked about last time, that's, there's a lead time to that, to whether these tanks would be here in time for the Ukrainian counteroffensive or as a longer term um, sort of backfill to um, Ukrainian losses they might take. But basically, if Russia goes first and they grind themselves down by, for all the reasons you just mentioned, you know, lack of equipment, not being ready, and the, the political pressure to get something to talk about, just to show a success, that lets Ukraine then push back against a an even more exhausted and and ground down force and pretend that that might offset some of the real challenges that any Ukrainian offensive was going to was going to face, which, among other things, was, you know, the sheer manpower density that Russia is able to put along the line, um, you know, using those bodies to stop the offensive. There's a much higher density across the line right now than uh, than there was up in the Kharkiv area, which is going to make any counteroffensive that much harder because you're having, you got a, you got a thicker set of obstacles to go through. Um, that is unless Russia does you the solid of going first and exhausting themselves and potentially creating, creating some opportunities for a more effective counteroffensive than might've existed if Ukraine went first, basically. And this sort of goes into, you know, thinking about, uh, 
Putin's address to the Federal Assembly, and we'll talk about President Biden's visit, which uh, I think is going to reshape that address, at least to some extent, is that the reason that obviously Russia started its offensive uh, roughly, let's say, 10 days, two weeks ago, there's sort of if if it was bigger or more successful, we would have known exactly when it started, um, is that the Russians have basically their version of the State of the Union uh, coming up uh, tomorrow, actually. So we're recording February 20th, this is Monday evening. It's gonna be tomorrow, um, you know, in Russia. And it's quite obvious that in Putin's mind, if the offensive had been successful over the seven to 10 days uh, prior to the Federal Assembly, he would have loved to, you know, gone up there, uh, you know, full of confidence, you know, strutting to the podium and, you know, crowed about Russian successes. But that's not available to him. Um, Bakhmut is still not taken, which uh, I'm sure rankles. Um, and then on top of it all, uh, as we talked about before, uh, President Biden made a made a surprise visit to Kiev uh, to, you know, provide a morale boost. Uh, announced a $450 million uh, aid package to uh, the Ukrainians. And uh, I was looking this up, how often have US presidents gone to war zones? This is, in essence, the uh, a number of US presidents have gone to visit US troops serving in one conflict or another. Uh, the last several have done so. But it goes back until, in terms of active hostilities, against a relatively evenly matched uh, adversary. Uh, uh, in reverse order, President Eisenhower had gone to, uh, went on a three-day trip to visit troops in South Korea during the Korean War. Uh, FDR obviously had gone to Yalta. Uh, this is obviously towards the end of the conflict, but, or sort of in 43, 45 he went, or 43 he went. Um, and President Lincoln, uh, you know, going to going to the front in, in 1864. So it really is at the level of FDR, Eisenhower, Lincoln, in terms of the, the personal safety of the, the U.S. president not being more or less under the control of uh, U.S. forces. Um, the Russian media uh, spin on this is that apparently the Russians were alerted uh, ahead of time and as the Washington Post put it, not uh, through the usual diplomatic courtesy channels, ostensibly through the State Department to the, um, you know, Russian Foreign Ministry, but through the Department of Defense, Ministry of Defense deconfliction channel, um, which I can only imagine uh, has rankled Putin to the, the core of his essence, because at the end of the day, a year, roughly speaking, a year ago, Putin expected to have Ukraine, some portion of it, under either Russian control directly or as, you know, partitioned or part of his sphere of influence. And the day before his big, uh, his big speech to the country and to the world on, you know, why victory is around the corner, his adversary is coming in and, uh, you know, obviously, shaking hands, kissing babies, doing the, the usual thing that, you know, uh, President Biden likes to do. And that on uh, Russian TV was presented as, obviously, the United States is the puppet master of Ukraine. 
Uh, and so the real adversary of Russia is the United States, not these Ukrainians. Um, and one thing that, you know, nearly made my eyes fall out of my head or my ears fall off or any other sort of like uh, spontaneous combustion is that one of the guests said that the Russian side was magnanimous because they did not uh, shoot down uh, Air Force One when it was in Poland or, sh uh, you know, attack the uh, train as it was approaching uh, Kyiv. And that really got me thinking, at the end of the day, the Russians knew that Biden was in Kyiv and did nothing about it. And their own sort of impotence in the face of that fact is probably made Putin even angrier today than he was yesterday. And that's, uh, that's his preparation for, uh, for the big speech tomorrow. Not a great little last thing to drop, you know, on the, uh, on the dress rehearsal that you have your big performance. Um, and I'm glad none of your appendages, you know, self ignited for all that stuff, but it is, this, this is not normal. Uh, you know, for, as you said, like us presidents and they have gone in the past to visit us troops for deployed. Um, and, you know, I, I think I was in country, um, either in Iraq or Afghanistan for, uh, you know, one or one or more of those visits, right. They don't, they don't, they basically don't tell you until it's over kind of thing you know, for, for security reasons. And, you know, but I think it's worth that historical contrast is worth pointing out because like none of those, none of those events, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan, George Bush or Barack Obama, none of those are without risk, right? I don't want to, to minimize that. Going into a country you don't fully control um, where there are hostilities, where American troops are in, you know, daily danger, that is not a non, that is not a zero risk decision. But as you mentioned in, the, in those cases, like the, you know, Al Qaeda in Iraq or the Taliban had really no realistic capability of, uh, of impacting Air Force One or, or any significant impact on the security of the president visiting because we, we may not have had full control of things across the entire countries, but where the president was going Fair to say we had we had the most possible control over it that we could and we controlled that destiny because he was flying into flying on american planes into an american controlled base with american security you know uh military forces all around him right like we controlled their destiny going in and out of those visits not the same for going to visit kiev you know and that that deconfliction thing that happened there you know i'm i'm sure that you know there would be um you know, pundits on one side or the other would be like, oh, why did you even tell the Russians that he was coming? Right. They could have could have opened up, you know, tried to go after that train, like you mentioned, or decide to do a cruise missile attack on Kiev um, when they they knew President Biden was going to be in the area. You would think they're not that crazy. But looking at Putin's decision making process over the last year, you can't necessarily count it out and you would not have any ability to do anything about it because we don't have any presence in Ukraine. We don't have any of our own aircraft, any of our own troops, any of all those security measures that all uh, you know the previous presidents had going to Iraq or Afghanistan. So definitely a higher risk event. Um, but but he did it anyway. And as you said, they couldn't stop it. Like whatever, if there might have been a tiny little part maybe in their minds was like, you know, you know, F it, we're already way behind in this war. And, you know, it just means that more aid's coming. Why not take it? Why not take a shot? But even they you know, Putin and company are not that crazy because that would open up the last 
gates of resistance to dumping everything into Ukraine you could. And so I think that very, that public impotence is uh, equally as important possibly to show that he couldn't do anything as the security aid and, you know, the photo, you know, obviously a very strong message that we're sending the, you know, commander in chief in your country to go do that. But the, the messaging of, oh, by the way, you also couldn't stop it is also a very, very strong signal to send. Very un unusual. And I, maybe, maybe we can look back in, in later years and be like, was well, this truly a historic thing or were there other things that happened that were more historical import in the conflict? But, you know, as of right now, it's a pretty singular action and a very strong message to send. Yeah, so certainly. And, you know, part of that is, you know, I've often sort of wondered whether, whether Putin's the most afraid person on earth at this moment. Um, there's been a number of reports in, in recent days that Putin no longer uh, flies to most places, but instead takes armored um, armored trains uh, in or because ostensibly he's afraid that uh, if the if the Ukrainians pick up basically the the presidential jet, that however many fighter jets that they have left, they'll send everything they have to try to like you know uh, shoot Putin out of the sky. And so part of the danger of you know the U.S. president going to a place that even I think really only in terms of uh, the, the battle space being locked down, only Lincoln uh, really was in a place where, you know, people were actively shooting at him. Um, and obviously today uh, there was an air raid siren while uh, Biden was in Kyiv, is that Biden has made more visits to Ukraine than Putin has over the past year. And so even for the areas, you know, Luhansk People's Republic, Donetsk People's Republic, uh, Kherson, Zaporizhia, even the areas which are now, from the Russian perspective, part of Russia, Putin hasn't gone to visit them, partly because he doesn't control it, you know, Russia doesn't control all those areas militarily, um, mostly because they're super dangerous places to be for anyone, much less the uh, the Russian leader. But it really short up of uh, paints a very clear contrast. The president of the United States, who's probably in a certain sense, the busiest person on earth, because like literally all the world's problems are his in one way or the other, was willing to take 20 hours of you know his time here on earth in order to get on a train, in order to like fly to, not just like fly to Poland, but from Warsaw, get to the border, get on a train, take a train to Kyiv, get out, do all the, do all the meetings, do all the photo ops, you know, speak to the people, like all the stuff that he's going to do, and then take a train back. That's essentially the sort of commitment that as you're putting it, it demonstrates, you know, America's uh, commitment to Ukraine, America's commitment to, um, you know, the European strategic stability, but it does draw that contrast that President Biden at 80 years old, is so much less afraid of his shadow than Putin is at 70. And that's something that I'm sure is going to rankle um, Putin for uh, the rest of his days. Yeah, and in, in, you're talking about doing that the math. It's not just the train ride, but getting from DC to Europe is not a quick proposition. If he wanted to, Putin could probably like zip in and out of any of those territories, um, you know, those four territories that they annexed whenever he wanted to. And that's like, you know, that's like a, a an afternoon trip for him if he wanted to do it, but he doesn't want to do it. And uh, 
that fact alone, um, yeah, probably really gets under his skin. And uh, so this will make for a very interesting uh, setting, you know, pre uh, pre game party, if you will, for his speech tomorrow, um, and sort of see what if there's any even if there's even any like I, I know at this point like do you change the script for the boss like in at the very last stage or is he just gonna go on give the speech he was gonna give anyway and act like this whole thing didn't happen? Um, although I'm sure that the Russian mill bloggers will note that hey, you left something pretty big out from the last 24 hours there. The address of the Federal Assembly, it's both houses of the Russian parliament. It is going to, it's something like a State of the Union. And like every State of the Union, there is essentially what has happened since the last one. How do you basically see where the country is right now? And where do you see things going? In literally all countries of the world, all basically every political system has some version of this. Where are we coming from? Where are we and where are we going? In the past year, uh, Russia inaugurated a special military operation, you know, per the, the Russian line, uh, which started with recognizing uh, Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics as independent states. And then the in the way, and this is like what the Russians did with um, their invasion of Georgia. Uh, this is what they did in their annexation of Crimea. Um, little bit different, but same principle of being invited in uh, when they went into Syria as well, although they did recognize the, the Assad government, which was existing at that time, is that LNR and DNR, once they were recognized, then immediately asked for support from the Russian Federation. That's the actual uh, invasion that we um, observed. In September, those two areas, plus uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia, um, creating in effect the land bridge connecting Russian Federation to Crimea and encircling the Sea of Azov, uh, that was annexed directly into the Russian Federation. Again, Putin has not visited his, uh, his, new, his new belongings, even though he did claim, you know, that, you know, the historical uh, precedent, you know, set by uh, Vladimir Putin of making the Sea of Azov internal Russian waters has now been restored. And it's been clear over the past several years, but over the past year, more than more than anything else, is that Putin wanted to really take as much territory as possible, really expand Russia, not just to secure his own legacy as, you know, the, the expander of Russia, but to put him in the historical uh, conversation alongside um, Stalin, not less Stalin, because Stalin, you know, indirect control, but Peter the Great and uh, Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan, Ivan Grozny, who, who were the ones who were really successful in terms of creating the expansion of Muscovy and the expansion of the Russian Empire to more or less the modern boundaries that we, that we understand today. And that if the uh, post-Soviet uh, borders were not ones that uh, Putin thought were uh, reflective of Russia's historical realities, that he be the person to restore that. So on some level, Russia has more territory. They started printing new maps for distribution to government offices and schools, which show that the conquered territories are now part of Russia. We also know that things are not going well. We are one year minus four days into a three-day operation. So obviously he then has to say, where are we in the sense of we're not where we want it to be? The big victories uh, so far in the war 
were the destruction of Mariupol um, and what they obviously wanted out of Bakhmut. Uh, they've been able to extend their their basically tacit military control over a couple, couple you know, a couple thousand square kilometers of Ukraine. Um, and the big question of the audience, you know, both the people inside the, um, you know, inside the fancy room, as well as people, uh, you know, watching on TV or watching online, is is this enough in terms of victory inside the room itself? The people who are inside Russian government fairly well understand there is no victory. But what are the alternatives? The alternatives are um, keep fighting or admit that they've lost. Admitting that they lost means that, uh, holy crap, everything is going to collapse. So they're going to keep fighting. The nationalists, you know, the military bloggers, uh, you know, the more bloodthirsty types are going to want to see something out of Putin that he recognizes the gravity of the situation, that the status quo, that business as usual, that victory is just around the corner is insufficient. They're going to want to see what is the most intense application of Russian military power this year. Not thinking about 24, 25 or the future. They want all of Russia to fight right now. The much smaller element of, uh, let's say, economic or political liberals, uh, the people who want this war to come to an end as soon as possible, effectively have no more voice anymore. Their only hope is that whatever resolution happens, either winning or losing, comes quickly enough that they can uh, basically start the path towards economic uh, normalization as quickly as possible. So in terms of things that might be um, that might happen tomorrow, uh, obviously it could be announcement second mobilization, which is not going to be all that useful in the short term, but it might be useful in terms of bucking up Russian morale if the troops on the front lines uh, know that another 300 or 500,000 500, uh, more citizens are coming to help fight. Uh, they could declare victory and go home, uh, <laughs> which is obviously the, the pipe dream uh, of many. Um, they can also, as has been suggested in you know, certain circles, they can declare victory and recast the conflict as an anti-terrorism campaign in order to say, the special military victory, the special military operation has been successful, but because this is now anti-terrorism and anti-Nazism, that that'll basically do something ostensibly to help bring in more Chinese support uh, because China is not going to want to um, engage in helping Russia not lose a war uh, because it's hard for China to you know, really move the needle. They don't want to put their own prestige there, but if it's under the rubric of anti-terrorism, anti-extremism that comports with uh, China's uh, own, uh, you know, values, attitudes, um, you know, uh, objectives. And that would be the rubric under which uh, China could bring uh, more of its capabilities to bear. All that said, um, the United States is going to be at fault for everything. Uh, that sort of goes without saying at this point. Uh, but something, something that indicates that Putin's angry. That's essentially what Biden's visit did. Is it just riled him up? Uh, and they're going to announce something really violent and dumb tomorrow uh, because that's the only way to make the boss feel better and to soothe his uh, to soothe his feelings.
Yeah, you know, it's it's probably fair to say that we we can expect another, you know, barrage of Russian cruise missile attacks because they do seem to time those with other, you know, other things externally to sort of just make a point, right? That whatever else is going on, they can still inflict pain and suffering across Ukraine. Um, oh, I'm curious to see if if there's some sort of announcement of, you know, greater application of violence, greater commitment on the part of the nation. I'm curious how that actually quantifies because there have been, uh, again, in looking at in the, you know, their, their underwhelming offense of the last few weeks, uh, there have been some commentators and analysts who, who noted, and I think this has been noted in in sort of low, somewhat lower percentages in the past over the last several months, but Russia's basically already all in militarily in Ukraine. Like they, maybe aside from naval forces that don't necessarily transliterate into ground combat, that they have stripped and pulled almost all of their national military non-nuclear capability to go to Ukraine. So if they're, and I've heard percentages from like, you know, 80 to 90 to 97%. So there's obviously a, you know, right. a, a, a degree of error there, but let's put it at, you know, split the difference and say they're 90% of their military capability is already committed to that fight. Like what's left, you know, if, if we're, if we're going to go harder and, and, you know, once more with feeling, what is left to put in there that has not already been committed. And, you know, it did, you know, uh, say they do a, another round of conscription, as you said, it's not going to have any impact in the short term. And if 90% of your fighting equipment, training, military, practical knowledge that, it, you know, whatever lessons learned they've had that remains, you know, left and the, the Russians are alive in the front, what's going to go to that last 10% that's going to make any significant difference. You know, I, I don't know, unless they're, um, you know, they, they've been hiding stuff in caves that nobody's really been tracking, but, you know, that they're just in a practical application sense, they're already basically all in. So what, uh, what what's what's left to go, what's left to, to take it over the top and, and, and in a way that would make, you know, the mill, the Russian mill bloggers and the population notice that there's any difference whatsoever from what's been going on the last several months. I, I don't know. The only thing that has made the, the military bloggers and like the, the TV people happy is uh, just more Ukrainian deaths. So we've observed over the course of the, the conflict that Russia has like attempted nuclear saber rattling. And the last time that they did this was around the time that they were uh, uh, fighting in and around the the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is that uh, President Biden, President Macron of France, and Josep Borrell, the foreign policy chief of the European Union, <clears throat> all within 24 hours said that the response from the West would be uh, devastating, but it would be conventional in order to maintain the taboo against the, the first use of nuclear weapons. And at that point, the Russians then uh, stopped talking about nuclear weapons and started to move their uh, ships a little further away from uh, Ukrainian shores. So we can imagine that, in essence, whatever the, the sort of like the parameters of the conflict are so far, the deterrence has worked in a sense of the Russians have not used chemical, biological, um, nuclear or radiological weapons. That's on one side. The United States and West and NATO partners have not directly entered the conflict. 
so what is it and this is basically you know we we could speculate for a long time what would make the blood what would slake the bloodthirst of uh the military bloggers that would then effectively give them hope that something more uh, substantive than you know victory on the corner is available to russian forces in ukraine and there you know it's just it's just basically we could have an exercise in like what's the worst thing that we could think of yeah i and i think that that, that deterrence point is good to make because i uh, on the conventional side, like I um, you know, mentioned a couple minutes ago, I think it's fair to say at a minimum, we'll probably see another volley of, uh, of missile, uh, long range missile attacks on Ukraine. It you know, may be coinciding with tomorrow or with the one year mark of the war. Um, and there's separately, there's been some analysis saying that. And this is, I think I don't want to get too far ahead because the, I think the economics of the Russian economy or the Russian military support to the war. We're going to cover in detail in the next episode, so I don't want to steal that thunder. But point is, uh, Russia has been able to continue a level of, you know, missile production. So when they send these volleys, and and some people have, you know, I say myself included, you know, looking months back, and I'm, you know, I'm probably wrong at this point because there there does seem to be a a minimal at least ability for Russia to regenerate some of its long range strike capabilities. So they may be able to simply continue doing you know, every 30 days, whatever they built during that last month, flinging out Ukraine cause, uh, you know, cause, cause civilian casualties, damage the infrastructure, which is not insignificant. If, if you are, if you're Ukrainian and you live there, that's still more misery piled on top of what's already gone on. But, right. you know, we've already seen that has not been enough, that like it's, it's misery, but it's not nearly enough to a make any significant impact on the willpower of Ukraine to stay in the fight. Right. Like all it does is make it matter. And we've, we've talked about this in past episodes that the idea you can bomb your way to victory is simply untrue. It's been tried. There are lots of data sets and it doesn't work. Um, missile attacks every 30 days, it, though it's bad, but it's it's not something that's going to be decisive and make Ukrainians all of a sudden say, all right, we're done. Let's come to the negotiating table. But it's also not going to be sufficient to slake the bloodlust, as you just mentioned, of the the people who really who want you know, Putin to stop holding back, right? Like whatever they think he's been holding back, finally unleash it. Um, but I, I per, like, I'm not an expert in, in sort of, you know, deterrence or the, the calculus of why, why senior political leaders make some of their decisions. But I honestly, I can't think of an option that would be bloody enough to satisfy, you know, the most hardline people living in Russia right now who want to want to do it all in the kitchen sink. And that does not cross a, like some sort of deterrence line that Western countries will simply say, well, yeah, that's too bad, but we're not going to do anything about it. Like, I don't, I don't think there's anything that slips through that crack there um, that would, that would prevent escalation from all of Ukraine supporters, uh, but still make every, you know, the Russians happy because they're, they're more dead Ukrainians. I, I, I don't know what that looks like. Um, so I really, you know, they can ask for, you know, go all the way all they want and Putin can promise it tomorrow. Don't know what that looks like in, in any meaningful way that would not put Russia into a a situation where they they remove all excuse from the West to go all in in terms of their support to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so don't want to steal the thunder because we're going to I think I expect your next episode about the economic conditions is going to give us a sense sort of, of of what, you know, one 
what Russia can regenerate over time in terms of keeping itself in the fight, you know, but also what types of things those things are and whether those capabilities are more advanced or what's probably more likely they might be able to do build a certain number of modern cruise missiles, but it's not as much as they could before. And that's going to be a diminishing capability. Um, anyway, we'll say that for next time. But uh, I think last thing we wanted to touch on is what's the latest in terms of arms packages and military support to Ukraine. And, um, you know, what's, uh, what's, what's the latest, what's the latest thing that's, what you were saying, you know, we went from the javelin to the high Mars to the tank. Um, you know, what's, what's the new javelin today? Uh, we have made it to the F-16 uh, and fighter jets uh, writ large. Um, one, one quick note. So in effect, what we've seen over the, the course of the conflict is that uh, the Ukrainians have decided, you know, what is the, what is the ladder of lethality here? And they, they've gone up and, you know, from, you know, rung to rung, they've gotten stuff that is more lethal and more long range. And that's really the, the story of how the Ukrainians have been able to hold the Russians off. Um, in our last episode, we discussed uh, tanks we, and, and other armor vehicles, um, armor fighting vehicles, uh, in which we both revealed um, what is not a tank, uh, if you really think enough about it hard enough. Um, and what we said at that time was, now that we've we've reached the, uh, the the tank rung, uh, you know, the tank step on the ladder, the next thing is going to be fighter jets. And over the, the past week, or the past, like, let's say several weeks, um, we've had uh, Ukrainian representatives go to the UK and uh, uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, met his uh, Ukrainian counterpart, uh, and they did basically the whole Top Gun experience uh, together. Uh, and the Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of Britain, uh, said that uh, British uh, fighter jets uh, were being actively discussed. We've also seen that uh, a number of European countries have started to backfill their own uh, capabilities of uh, more contemporary um, F-16, F-22 jets, I don't think F-22, sorry, scratch that. F-35. F-35s. And where we saw in the past week at the Munich Security Conference is that all the Ukrainian attendees were uh, walking around with F-16 T-shirts and finding every uh, American uh, official that they could in order to ask whether that official wanted to have his or her picture taken with uh, F-16s for Ukraine T-shirts. And all of them were more than happy to do so. And all of them indicated that um, if there are any impediments, it's not going to come from the congressional branch, or from the legislative branch. So at this point, uh, you are an aviator. Uh, you've always been, that's not at this point, you, you, you are an aviator. Um, so can you sort of go through, as you sort of best describe it, um, you flew helicopters, but you're very familiar with sort of like aviation writ large. What are the short-term effects of greater short-term costs and benefits, short-term effects of, uh, you know, fighter jets to Ukraine? What might be in the medium term when thinking about post-conflict uh, relations between Ukraine and Russia? And then think what could be sort of like long-term implications of uh, Ukraine getting fighter jets from 
the United States and other European countries. Yeah, well, it's, I, at, at this moment in time, I am still a, uh, a, a designated aviator, although it has been it's been a hot minute since I've uh, been behind the stick. But yeah, I, I don't want to dwell on this point too much um, because partly because I, I, I don't want to say it's moot, but as we were talking about before we recorded, if every say the U.S. or, you know, the European operators of, of the F-16 or even some of the other, you know, European made fighter aircraft, because there are um, European domestic fighter aircraft manufacturers that make good aircraft. Um, even if they all said yes today, right? Okay, what happens next? Um, and as we, we talked about before, like, you know, JLo's personal opinion, if, if people had said yes on February 25th or 28th a year ago, maybe right about now is when you would have operationally meaningful fighter aircraft present with a basic maintenance support infrastructure and basically trained aviators, uh, maintainers and ground crews who could, you know, arm launch and recover and send those things to go do missions. Now, maybe, right. Um, but some of the other things we, again, we talked about before here, we started recording our what, the when and if and when these things, if they should have been given at some point, you know, we're, we're not policymakers. That's, um, that's not something I can really speak to, but, you know, practically speaking, kind of with the tanks, right? If, even if the yes was today, um, the timeline for it being impactful, say for the, uh, you know, the Ukraine's counteroffensive when, you know, some point in the spring, everyone's sort of expecting them to launch one. Would they be operationally meaningful if we said yes today? Again, JLo's personal opinion, I don't think so. Um, and that's because the yes is one thing, um, but in similar fashion to the tanks, to be operationally meaningful, you need to have places to operate them from, which I mean, Ukraine's got airfields, right? So like the basic basic wide flat surfaces to launch and recover, they have that, okay, they have that part. But you need to have the, you need people trained on how to fly it. You need people trained on how to maintain it. You need uh, sufficient, you need a supply um, pipeline that gives you the parts to repair those things. You know, when they come back and, and aircraft, probably, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be a, an aviator snob, but right, aircraft take a lot to get in the sky. Like there's there there's a discussion of how many man hours of maintenance it takes for one flight hour of operations. And I'm not sure what the F-16's ratio for that is, but uh, you know, the F-16 is among, you know, generation of relatively older aircraft compared to ones that are, you know, being built fresh today, older aircraft take, take more maintenance time. So you're probably talking double digit maintenance man hours, um, to one, to every one flight hour you're, and your maintainer, that's when your maintainers know exactly what they're doing, which if you're starting from a, a zero, you know, maintenance, uh, can't talk right now. If you're talking from a maintenance experience of zero for a new airframe, there's going to be a lot of uh, learning and possibly, you know, mistakes as you learn that are going to impact the availability of those aircraft. You know, shorty, which is a long way of saying brand new maintainers uh, can potentially make it harder to launch aircraft because you may have to go and, you know, unscrew things they did accidentally, which hits aircraft availability. And in, uh, I, I think it was, there's a war on the rocks piece recently um, that went into say like, so you got the basic stuff, you know, done in the next couple months. That is the most basic level of ready, you know, of capability and operational 
you know, operational performance after a few months. The ability to make a really, you know, a senior, very knowledgeable maintainer who's capable of, of running all of the, the different shops that go into a maintenance department and a squadron, that takes years to build. Um, your most senior maintainers have been around for probably, you know, we're talking decades, right? Not single years. Uh, that to build that that knowledge base to be able to effectively run a maintenance department and manage supplies and all that stuff. Same thing with the the pilots. Um, you know, we were talking again before. You you can transition to different airframes, right? In the Marine Corps, U.S. military, that hap that happens, and there's a transition program that a pilot will go through. But you're still talking months because you can take a you know you can't just look at two different jet aircraft and say, well, they're both jet aircraft, so you know. Most of your skills were tra will transfer, right? Some of those skills will transfer. You know, this, some of the basic aerodynamical knowledge is going to transfer. Your your basic skills for takeoffs and landings will transfer. But that's still a new. Um, it's a new set of aircraft systems, and that's just the systems that you know move the flight controls and run the engines. You have to learn all those. You have to learn all the emergency procedures that go with those systems. You have to get into, you know, learning the new, you know, avionics, communications, um, whatever targeting instruments you have, your basic flight instruments for keeping, you know, flying straight and level under visual and IFR conditions. Um, you need to, uh, if you're if you're getting a new aircraft with different weapons, right? Like your MiG, your MiG series aircraft and your F-16, different ordnance loadouts. So you have to learn all the systems that go into the proper. Um, you know, attachment and then deployment of those munitions. You got to learn the per performance parameters of those munitions. And we're not even talking like air to air combat stuff here, right? That's uh, your, your F-16 is going to perform different than your, different than your MiG. Um, in fact, that was, I, I only know this because very tangentially, this relates to one of my other areas of personal interest, which is John Boy Mini Warfare, right? I have to throw that in every few episodes, but the F-16 performed very differently in its flight test than the, the other prototype it was up against, which would become the Navy's F-18 thing, right? Both jet aircraft, different performance parameters because of how those aircraft were built. And so your pilots are gonna have to learn all those too. So even if you go through a basic transition program of, you know, I know what button put to push to start the engine and how hard to pull back on the stick to take off, that's just the beginning. To build your expert F-8, your, sorry, F-16 pilot, again, that's a years long process. And they would be starting from basically zero. So say the yes went out today. OK, we get the balls rolling. Um, and as I said, maybe by the end of 2023, you might have a, a basic operational capability um, and ability to uh, to maintain it and, and train your maintainers and establish that parts pipeline. Maybe. So, you know, again, whether that's whether that was the right answer or not, and whether that's something that, you know, other, you know, us in other countries should have given. Uh, you know, points we didn't, and and saying yes today is gonna not gonna do a whole lot to shape the battlefield in in the coming months. But again, you know, kind of with the tanks, it's an indicator of longer term commitment to having a stronger, more capable Ukraine, capable of hopefully deterring any future Russian aggression. You know, at, at the point that this conflict maybe doesn't reach a resolution but reaches a as you mentioned like a, a you know a north korea south korea type thing maybe where you've you've effectively stopped your adversary's ability to conduct aggression against you and then you're just hardening the line to 
make any second consideration of a repeat performance so much more difficult and so much more bloody that it's not even something they would consider. So, you know, in a, in a certain sense, the, the best case is that maybe in a couple of years, if and when the, these, uh, these fighter jets join the, the tanks and, and the other things uh, along the way, it's maybe something for later in the conflict, if the conflict continues to last for a couple of years, but perhaps as you put it, shaping the post-war armistice. Uh, and allowing the conflict to to settle to a level in which both sides are able to deter each other and that neither side is able to uh, conduct aggression against the other at will. And that may be, in effect, the not great, <laughs> uh, but certainly better than um, just continuous conflict. Yeah, I, I'm not, you know, it's not, I, I'm confident it's not the sort of situation Ukraine would want and i on the russian side i whatever you know that sort of armistice looks like it'd be you know be unsatisfying because you probably have you know the the russian the mill bloggers and the hardliners saying similar things like you know we've made all these sacrifices all of our dead russian boys and we didn't you know we didn't get it we didn't move the border any further than we than we were promised you know but it's one thing it's one thing to be unsatisfied but it's another to to have the ability to do something about it and you know again looking at the situation in the korean peninsula that's uh, that's not a sad. I'm sure it's not satisfying for South Koreans, right, to be living within uh, an artillery shot of a, a nuclear armed, you know, kind of crazy person. Um, definitely not ideal for all the North Koreans, right, who live in basic, you know, poverty and shut off from information. And, you know, even who's as we saw several years back, you know, even the soldiers they put along the DMZ who are probably fed a little bit better, right, than your average um, soldier well away from the front line from their perspective. You know, I remember that guy, you know, he ran across the DMZ and his own friends were shooting at him. And uh, he came across and his body was like riddled with parasites because they're just so sick and so malnourished. So not an ideal situation for North Koreans either. And, you know, as an unresolved problem, it's a, it's a constant security concern that, you know, the United States, Japan um, and other, other regional actors you can never take your eye off North Korea fully, right? Because you just never know what that, that when that guy's going to want to light off a couple missiles into the Sea of Japan, and you never really know what's going to be on top of those missiles. It's not satisfactory, um, but it's endured without spilling over into a second Korean War, which would be bloody and catastrophic. And, you know, in an imperfect world, maybe that's the best you hope for. Um, so I think that's a great note of uh, Russia as a future, uh, ever more gigantic uh, North Korea. Good place to pause, good place to look forward to um, the next episode where we will talk about the Russian economy uh, a year into the conflict and ostensibly review uh, Putin's temper tantrum uh, that will be a couple days in the rearview mirror at that point. Yeah, you know, and well, it, you know, if Putin has developed a, if he's become an aficionado of armored trains, then he is joining his, you know, friend in North Korea who is a well-known aficionado of traveling by armored train. So, you know, hey, if you want, if you want to take those first steps to becoming North Korea, armored trains is that first rung in the ladder of becoming, you know, a completely closed-off, um, poverty-stricken prison camp for your own population. So, congratulations! You check that box.
and let no uh, viewer or listener uh, take the wrong message from what Major Brown and I are saying. We are very much uh, advocates of public transportation. The train is a lovely way to travel. We are not denigrating trains per se. Not, no, not at all. I, I spent my, my high school years in Toronto taking public transportation to and from high school every single day. It wasn't armored, you know, a little different, but still got you where you needed to go. Okay. Well, yes, I think we have, um, we have culminated as some might say. <laughs> so yeah, no, I think, uh, definitely in a couple more days, we're going to have some more stuff to look at and the, uh, the considerations of the Russian economy, you know, I think, I think we agree that that's going to sort of determine the arc of what the rest of this year looks like. And then outside of that year, uh, what the long-term prospects for Russian economy are, you know, once, once, if, if they go all in, in the next few months, you know, then what, <laughs> like you can't go all in anymore in the, in the out years. And, uh, and maybe we, this might lay the groundwork too. I've, we've wanted to get our Middle East studies folks in to talk about Iranian uh, military support to Russia. And if some of the, some of the headlines percolating recently about, you know, Chinese shifting from non-lethal support to more direct military support to Russia, we might, we're probably gonna have to get our, uh, our China SME Dan Rice on here as well to help us talk about that. So, but it all starts next episode. So something to look forward to. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Crewland community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.